once again, welcome to worship. Uh, before I introduce our, this morning's teacher, just want to shout out a phrase. Love for you to fill in the blank. The phrase goes something like this. We can't do everything, but we can all do... Thank you. We can all do something. Last year, we kicked off this, this campaign to do something on behalf of the 1.4 billion people on the planet that are living on less than $1.25 a day. And many of you, if not all of you, sacrifice something good to participate in something great. And we raised over $100,000 to give to end extreme poverty. In June, we gave a $50,000 check. If you remember, Gary Walter was here, the president of our denomination, the coming denomination. We gave him this check to accelerate the work of God in Congo. Our denomination is a partnership with World Vision. And we said, yes, we want to partner with you on behalf of those living literally on 10 cents a day to do something to end poverty in that part of the world. And today, I get to introduce to you a second partner that we have, Nairobi Chapel, as they are doing a great work in the city of Nairobi and literally around the world, and our partnership with Uzima, a preschool in the slums of Nairobi. Our, our uh, preacher, our communicator this morning is a dear friend of mine by the name of Janet Mutinda. Uh, she's a pastor of Nairobi Chapel, which is a church literally of thousands of people. And uh, she's um, uh, you know, a wife of a, a great man by the name of Tim Mutinda, and she's a spiritual mother of many, many young people. Uh, she has a great passion for the Word, just an excellent teacher of God's Word. And most importantly, she just loves Jesus with all her heart and soul and mind and strength. And it's a delight for me to welcome back Janet. She was here about two years ago. So would you please join me in welcoming Janet Mutinda? Thank you. Well, good morning. And I do bring you greetings from Nairobi. And um, we thank God for what he is continuing to do here at Maple Grove Covenant Church. Even as he continues to do great things among you, he's also doing great things in Africa. And unfortunately, the news channels never tell us the full story. But as the church and the people of God, we know that God is still on his throne and that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. He's continuing to do an awesome church, an awesome work through his church here in the United States and also in Africa and also in Kenya. Well, I want to share some of the things that God has laid on my heart that are very in line with what is happening here at Maple Grove. And I want to just share briefly, begin by sharing a story. A couple of years ago, God brought into our lives a family of about six orphaned children. And they were in really deep trouble. They had nobody to look after them. They had a house that was falling apart, literally had holes in the walls was a mud house. They had no food. And um, as we began to interact with these children, we felt God saying, do something about their situation. And so we began to send them food. And one month after another, we would send them food, and we continued sending food. And one time we realized it is not enough to just send them food. Because if we keep sending food, even two years later, they will still expect us to send them food. And we began to ask, what is it that we can do to change this situation permanently if we could? And God brought the idea in our hearts and said, you know, these kids, some of them had dropped out of school. Why don't you help them get an education? Help them get back to school, 
continue sending the food, but take these kids through school. And so we did that. And after four years, a few of them had finished high school and were able to get jobs and began to help some of their younger ones who are with them. And we continue to do that and partner together with the older kids. And now the youngest of those kids is actually on his third year studying Bachelor of Commerce in the University of Nairobi. And one of the great things that God taught me in this time and in that season was that it is not enough to give handouts. Because when we give handouts, we'll keep giving handouts. It is more important for us to give a hand up. And as we began to help these kids, we could see the change in them. And the older ones began to give a hand up to the younger ones. And on and on until all the kids are now in, done with school. This last one is in school. And the older ones are working. They never come back to us for food. They're able to sustain themselves. They're able to help others. And it was a very important lesson. And I will keep repeating this um, this morning. It is important. It is more important to give a hand up than to give handouts. Poverty is all around us. And we respond to poverty differently. You know, I, I'm sure some of you can think of times when you saw somebody in need and you did something about it and you helped them. But there are those times when we just don't see poverty around us. Maybe we are comfortably tucked away in some of our homes. Maybe we live in some of the suburban areas and we're not able to see poverty around us. Everybody seems fine. Maybe your children have never seen a homeless person. Sometimes we see poverty, but we are too busy to do anything much about it. And so we ignore it and we move on to the next thing. Sometimes we see poverty, but then we do not want to personally get involved. And we say, you know, let's leave it to the government. Let us leave it to welfare. Sometimes we simply do the hands-free thing. You know, when you're talking on your phone and you don't want to get caught and you have this gadget that is hands-free, sometimes we want to help hands-free. You know, just to appease our guilt, send something little. You know, you could do so much more, but just send something little so that I can, my, my, the guilt in me can, can know I have done something small. Sometimes we simply, when we begin to see poverty as it is, the extreme poverty, when we begin to feel it, it is so easy to be overwhelmed. I mean, 1.4 billion people living below $1.25 a day in some countries, even in my country, that is a lot. There are people who live even below a dollar, even below 50 cents a day. And when you see that, it's so easy to be overwhelmed. What we do with 1.4 billion people, and when we get overwhelmed, it's easy for us to give up. It's easy for us to say, let's not even start. We can't do this. It will be just a drop in the bucket or in the ocean. It's so easy to get overwhelmed. You know, when I look at the situation in my country and in many African countries, there's so much need around us, and not just in Africa, but in many parts of the world. And we get overwhelmed. Many times we do not know how to respond, and we get paralyzed 
by the overwhelming need around us. You know, there are at least half a million children, like these orphan children that we helped, more than half a million children in my country who are stuck and would need the help. We are overwhelmed, but we still must do something. You know, I think each one of us can identify um, or several of the responses that I listed here, you can identify with some of these responses. And working with the poor, working with the needy is never easy. And many times it's not convenient. It calls for sacrifice. Many times it's not neat and tidy. You know, it comes with a lot of mess. And it's so easy for us to choose to turn a blind, blind eye to the poor and needy around us. But the Bible has a lot to say about poverty. The Bible has a lot to say about how poverty comes about and how we as God's people should deal with it. And there's so much we can learn from scriptures about how to handle poverty. And we as the church of God must stand to the word of God and not just simply experiment with social theories of the poor. And when I look through the scriptures, I see God consistently calling Israel to watch out for the marginalized people in their society. I see Jesus as he walked through the streets of Jerusalem and through his time on earth. I see him giving significant part of his ministry to the marginalized of our society and the society of that day. And so we as God's church today cannot afford to turn a blind eye to the poor and the needy around us and among us. But how do we do this? How do we give a hand up and not just simply give handouts? It's a very good question. And each one of us needs to think about it every time we want to give. Ask, is this a hand up or is this simply a handout? I want us to turn to Mark chapter 5 verse 21 and I'll read up to 20. Uh, 34 and this is a great passage that will help us glean some lessons as we seek to think about how do we give a hand up even as we seek to do something about the poverty around us mark chapter 5 and i'll read from verse 21 when jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake a great crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake And one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell to his feet and he pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering and at once Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him and he turned around to the crowd and he asked who touched my clothes 
You see the people crowding around you, the disciples answered, and yet you ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now I don't know if you notice as we read this passage that there are actually two stories weaved together into one. On one hand, the story of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and on the other hand, the story of the sick woman. This story is a story of Jesus healing this woman who had bled for 12 years. It's actually a story in many ways about poverty. And I want us to draw some interesting parallels from this passage this morning. Jesus surrounded by the crowds. So I imagine there was no easy access to him. And here is the synagogue ruler. We are given his name. His name is Jairus. And then there is this woman. We never get to know her name. She remains nameless. Jairus comes to Jesus boldly. He addresses his issue directly to Jesus. Come to my house, he pleads. He had faith that Jesus could heal his daughter. But he needed Jesus to come physically to his house. But this woman, she sneaked in and she came in from behind. She did not address Jesus directly, but she went for a very small and obscure contact point, the hem of his garment. You know, you may not know this, but many times poor people are usually very rich in faith. Jairus must have been wealthy, well-connected man in good standing in this society. And as the ruler of the synagogue, he was responsible for all the arrangements for, for public worship. So he had access to places of worship. But this woman who had suffered from this chronic ailment was very poor and she had spent all she had, but she kept getting worse. And in a sense, you almost feel like she was beyond help. Twelve years. I cannot even begin to imagine the pain and the suffering and the shame, even as we'll see here. You see, in, this day, in, in these days, when somebody had um, an issue of bleeding, they were proclaimed ceremoniously unclean. When you look through the scriptures in the Old Testament, if you would look at Leviticus chapter 15, for instance, verse 25, this is what the Bible used says, if the menstrual flow of blood continues for many days beyond the normal period, or if she discharges blood unrelated to her menstruation, the woman will be ceremoniously unclean as long as the discharge continues. Anything on which she lies or sits during that time will be defiled, just as it would be during her normal period. If you touch her bed or anything in which she sits on, you will be defiled. You will be required to wash your clothes and to bathe in water, and you will remain defiled until the evening. When the woman's period stops, she must count off a period of seven days. And after that, then she will become ceremonially clean. You see, this bleeding had made this woman unclean. 
Therefore, I imagine, okay, this is just me imagining. If she was married, maybe by this time she had long been divorced. We don't hear of any husband at this point. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. But I imagine no one was allowed to touch her or anything that belonged to her because it would repeatedly make them unclean. I imagine that possibly she did not have many, she, maybe she didn't have many friends because nobody wanted to come close to her. Because every time you came close to her, you became unclean. I imagine she was not able to engage in trade or business. I mean, who would come to her kiosk or to her shop? Who would buy anything from her? Because everything she touched was unclean. I imagine that maybe as she walked around because she didn't want to, um, to contaminate people, maybe she had to cry out, unclean, unclean. And I imagine people around her knew about her situation. I imagine the loneliness and the shame. And when I look at her, she's a good classic example of a poor person. But I want you to see something very important. Her poverty is multidimensional. She's materially poor. She had no more, she had, she had, she had spent, she had used all her money seeking or in search of medical attention. She had run out of funds. She was socially poor. Loss of dignity. I imagine she didn't have friends around her. She was labeled. She was spiritually poor. Like a leper, she was barred from having direct access to God. She couldn't go into the temple. Even as she approaches Jesus at this point, she approaches him with caution, very discreetly, with great fear. She is emotionally poor. No relationships around her. She is unclean. And I'm sure the word had leaked out and everybody knew there was something wrong with this woman. She was physically poor. She was ailing. She was weak. She was suffering. I imagine her body was depleted of many essential nutrients. Because when you lose blood, you lose a lot of nutrients. It's almost the source of our life. She was psychologically poor. She knows she's contaminated. And maybe as many people or poor people, she doesn't believe she deserves any better. And I imagine, I imagine her every day wrestling with all these thoughts, the alienation, and just wondering who will help me. Her physical discharge caused her to be discharged from the community, marginalized to the very periphery of society. We often think of poverty as material matter, just about money, but it's so much more than money. Poverty many times is multifaceted. It is also important for us, even as we think about poverty, to recognize and accept the fact that not all poor people are lazy. Yes, there are some who are poor because they are lazy and the Bible teaches us about that, you know, a little sleep, a little slumber, and before you know it, poverty would have come into your tent. But not every poor person is lazy. You know, in the Kenyan slums live some of the poorest people in my country. And yet, amazingly, the most hardworking people, the most resilient people that I've ever come across. 
men and women who live under a dollar a day and have they have to walk for many hours every morning to get to their place of work they do not have cars they cannot afford to pay for public transport they walk when you come to nairobi that's one of the shocking things you see this throng of people miles and miles if you wake up early in the morning and go to a strategic road you will see throngs of people almost several miles long walking to work and they would go there and they do heavy manual labor for hours on end and at the end of the day maybe with that dollar or less or just something a little bit more they take the return trip home walking home again several hours just to take that one dollar to their families not every poor person is lazy let's never assume that there are many reasons that lead people to poverty like this woman that we read about sometimes it could be a terminal illness or a crippling disease that completely wipes out your insurance wipes out your finances i've seen people sell their homes sell a lot of the uh, their assets just to help a loved one get medical attention and it's so easy for that to completely change your life and turn it upside down there are people who come from a family background where they grew up poor no education like the kids that i met and that cycle of poverty will continue to run from generation to generation unless there is intervention sometimes poverty comes on us unawares look at the global economic downturns that happen things that can bring big corporations and organizations to a grinding halt causing loss of thousands and thousands of jobs and there are people who never recover from that sometimes in countries and in nations in africa it would be the wars and some of the national and civil wars that take place in those countries and refugees are left with nothing and it's so hard to start all over again and many of them are completely completely held by the chains of poverty look at what happened in haiti or the the tsunamis in, in indonesia and all, i mean sometimes the acts of god the earthquakes and things that happen in this world will do something that will completely wipe out what you have even as a person and we are seeing that even here in the states with the floods in louisiana there are many reasons that lead people to poverty let's never assume it is laziness you know let's go back to the story of this woman in mark chapter 5 she was poor not because she was lazy not because of any sin it was simply because of this physical condition that she found herself in and you never see her sitting back you never see her resigned to this fate she had gone to all the doctors she had used up all her money but she was still trying to find a solution and at this point when she comes to jesus she risks everything to get the help that she desperately needed she took a courageous step she pushed her way through the crowds she walked in even though she knew the crowds could very easily stone her because she knew she was ceremoniously unclean and yet she intentionally came to the crowds and in a sense was contaminating everybody else but she takes the bull by the horns and she goes to Jesus 
and she touches him. And I imagine she thought that after she had touched him, she would slip away quietly. But that doesn't happen. Jesus recognizes somebody had touched him. And all of time stood still at that point as he called her out. And I kept asking myself, why did Jesus do that? He should have allowed her, you know, to fade away quietly. Was he trying to humiliate her? Didn't he realize just how dangerous this call um, was and this issue? Why was he calling attention to this fact? But look at what Jesus does. This woman came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. But Jesus stops and he turns to this woman who had been marginalized. He turns and he begins to speak directly to her. She is worth his time. She is worth his full attention. He stopped everything to attend to her. He even ignored this ruler of the synagogue to attend to her. He speaks kindly with gracious, loving words. And she confesses with great fear. But Jesus gives her hand up. He never lets her slip away quietly. He proclaims her healing publicly because if she had slipped away quietly, no one would have believed her healing. No one would have ex accepted her back into society. But when Jesus proclaims her healing publicly, society has to accept her publicly. He pronounces spiritual acceptance. She is now accepted. And then he uses a term of endearment. He calls her my daughter. A term that we see used for the children of God. Jesus does not shame her. She is no longer an outcast. She now belongs. What does Jesus do to this poor woman? He gives her a hand up, not just handouts. He literally takes her hand and then he relocates her back to her rightful position in society. And in the process, he heals her spiritually. He's, she's called daughter. She can now go to the temple. He heals her socially. The crowd knows about this healing. She doesn't need to hide. She doesn't need to explain to anyone. He heals her emotionally. I imagine the possibilities of new friendships now exist. He heals her physically. The flow of blood stopped immediately. He heals her psychologically. She is no longer an outcast. And then materially, maybe now she has an opportunity to engage in trade like everybody else and to earn a decent income because she now is clean and can operate in society as everybody else. You know, when I look at this, and I look at the blessing that he gives, he says, go in peace. In the English language, that is just a very narrow and thin saying. But the shalom of God means something deeper. It has a sense of more than just peace. It includes wholeness. Go, you are whole. A correct order has been restored. There is soundness. There is fulfillment. It comes with connotations of prosperity and health. Go in peace. And when you look through the scriptures over and over and over again, through the gospels, there are many healings from poverty. 
The blind and the crippled could now re-enter society. The outcast tax collector could re-enter society. The demoniac could re-enter society. The lepers could re-enter society. Jesus never gives handouts. Every time he gives a hand up and relocates people back to their rightful positions in society. So what can we today learn from this passage? The poor are all around us. And God expects us as his children to do something about it. He's not calling for the government or for the welfare department. He's calling you and I. He's calling his church. It is the clarion call of your do something campaign to end extreme poverty. Poverty, if you watch those videos by Chad, poverty has a name. Oniti had names like Pamela. But poverty has millions of names. But poverty, I love this, that poverty has a solution. And the solution is the church of God. You and I are the solution to this poverty. And this year God has allowed for a very amazing partnership to begin to form between Maple Grove Covenant Church and the Nairobi Chapel where I come from. And is allowing us in partnership to come together and in a small way to begin to end extreme poverty in different places in my country and beyond. And I just want to share very briefly what has happened as a result of this partnership. Um, there's one slum in Kenya called Silanga Slum. And this is a slum in a place called Dandora and its neighborhoods. And this is one of our main dump sites in Nairobi. And you find different shades of extreme poverty in this place. You will find the economically poor, the socially poor, the, the psychologically poor, the spiritual poor. As we listed them out, you will find them there. And as we as Maple Grove Covenant Church and Nairobi Chapel, we have chosen to come alongside one lady. Her name is Grace Waigwa. That's her on the screen right now. This is a retired medical lab technologist who began working with some very vulnerable children in the slum in 2006. She's, in, she's been part of our children's ministry in church for about 20 years now. But very specifically, God called her to begin some work in the slum in 2006. And she began with a Saturday outreach program to the children. And very quickly, it formed into something she never would have imagined possible. Every Saturday, she would go to the slum and she would have a, like a children's day camp. And the kids would come. And after a while, they realized many of the kids would just fall asleep. They were exhausted. And they began to ask, why is it these kids don't have energy? And they found out some of these kids would go even up to three days without food. Little, little kids. And so they would come because they want to be around kids and they want to do stuff with, with uh, teacher Gray, uh, Rose. But then they had no nourishment and they were weak. And so they began to give the kids a little snack every Saturday. And of course, when word went out, more kids kept coming every Saturday. And then they realized, if we continue giving just snacks, this is just a handout. We'll keep feeding them and feeding them, but there will be no transformation even in this community. And so God brought this idea, amazing divine idea, and she began a children's daycare. It's not as um, 
fancy as some of your daycares here. And um, that, those are some of the pictures there. And it's a very tiny room, very tiny room. And there are about 50 children crammed in this room. It's, um, it's like, I mean, the size of where this piano is. Right where I'm standing, up to the piano, that's the whole class, okay? Right from here. That's the whole class. Not even half of the stage. Not even a third of the stage. That's the size of the whole school. And there are 50 kids crammed in this classroom. And there are four different ages, four classes happening simultaneously in the same one room. I mean, I went there and I had no idea how these kids would even hear their specific teacher when the teacher was talking. But kids being kids, I mean, they're excited. They're shouting their alphabet. One team is singing, you know, different songs. And at lunchtime, they get a meal. And then in the evening, they move all the little chairs. And then they throw some carpet, very thin carpet. They'll throw the carpet, and the kids get an afternoon nap. And then at 4 o'clock, the kids get a little something to drink, and then they go home. Now, she only has 50 kids, not because that is the, the full capacity of that slum, but that is because she can only handle the 50 in the space that she has. And there are hundreds of parents coming, asking, can you help our children? Can you help our children? Because one of the major differences with what she's doing is a lot of what she does is spiritually based. The kids are learning scripture. The kids are learning a lot more than just their ABCDs. They're learning what it means to care for one another. You know, the fruit of the Spirit and all this, how to deal and to live and to work with one another, even as little kids. And so she's doing an amazing work. She has volunteers here. I got to meet one lady who is actually a university graduate. Awesome lady, beautiful. I mean, she could walk in any catwalk and get Miss World um, 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 recognition any day. And I looked at her and asked, why are you here in the slum? Because many times the volunteers are not even paid. Even though Rose has a staff, they get very little when there are funds. And when the funds are depleted, they just make do. And I asked her, why would you do this? And she said, God called me to do something. I can teach in a private school and get loads of money, but I am doing something to impact those who will never have a chance to get the kind of education many of our kids have. And she has she's continued to do that and has volunteered to do that for one year. And it's just been so humbling to see what is happening here. And so this is a picture of the body of Christ coming together to do something. It's a tiny baby step and it's very easy to despise the day of small beginnings. But I cannot wait to see what God will do in the future. Because I have confidence that what we have begun to do together will not just shape one child or these 50 children. It will shape and change the destiny of families in that community. And these children will in turn become change agents in that community. There is something that happens when kids are given a chance, given level ground to play with, like everybody else, given a solid education, given that meal and that tender love, where the teacher can now turn as Jesus did and embrace this child 
and say, you can do it and you can make a difference. You know, I cannot wait to see what the story will be like in another one, two, three, however many years God allows us the privilege to walk alongside these children. But we have not done everything that we can. There's still so much more to be done. And we together need to hear the voice of God as much as he has called us to this particular space and to many other spaces where he wants us to be the salt and the light, to do what he did to this one woman. You and I have to think, we have to pray, we have to fast and ask, Lord, what would you have me do? You know, it's great what we are doing corporately, even as a church, but we need to come to the space where we need to ask, have I done my very best? Have I given him my very best? You know, I thank God for the privilege that has been mine to be a part of many lives of people who have come out of that cycle of poverty. And when I look at what sometimes what my money, or what I would have thought was my money has done, you know, I look at that and I think, even my dream car, uh, it, keep change, it keeps changing every month. Um, even my dream car would never give me the sense of satisfaction and joy that I have when I meet one of these kids doing well. When I meet them and they say, you know, I'm now investing in this. When I meet one of these kids and they say, I am now helping somebody else. Nothing can give you that kind of joy that kind of satisfaction, sense of impact, that what I have has not just been for me, but has made a difference and changed the destiny of many others. So we are not yet done. And we need to continue to pray. We need to continue to fast. We need to continue to think. And we need to continue to give a hand up, even as we seek to end extreme poverty in our generation. In many ways, God has blessed us who are sitting here today. God has blessed us with material wealth. And you do not need to feel guilty about what God has given you. The Bible does not condemn wealth. It is the love of money and not money itself that is the root of all evil. We need to remember that the source of our wealth is the Lord and that he has given us this wealth as a gift. And therefore, we should not hold it and hoard it we should not boast about it because it is god who gives man the ability to create wealth we should not idealize our wealth by putting our our trust in it we should not get anxious about losing it instead we should ask the lord what is it that i can do with what you have given me to extend your kingdom and to help give a hand up to many others we must recognize that this wealth that God has given us is secondary to many things, including wisdom and including personal you know, integrity, humility, righteousness, and relationships around us. Money is not everything. You know, I, I really doubt that anyone at their deathbed says, oh, if only I would have made an extra dollar. I don't think anybody says that. I think many people, if there's ever regret is that they did not use their wealth well, is that they did not invest in relationship. 
is that they did not expend everything to be all that God wanted them to be. We must recognize that our being blessed is not our own privilege, but it's just a responsibility to be a blessing to many others. You know, to, to use what God has given to extend His love, to extend His reach, and to extend His grace. Our wealth is an opportunity for us to be generous, even when it is risky, even when it hurts, even when we, it calls us to sacrifice, our wealth is an opportunity for us to be generous. Look for the poor among you. It is what Jesus did and give them a hand up, not just handouts. This is a personal call. And one day, each of us will stand before the throne of God to give an account to God himself for what we did with the poor around us, for what we did with every gift, material and otherwise, what we did with this gift. And I pray that you and I will represent him well. I pray that you and I, when we come before him, we will hear him saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. You did something. Amen? Amen.